The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So if you will open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 30, we'll read here in just a a few minutes. Our, our study tonight is about the altar of incense. It's also known as the golden altar. And it was called the golden altar to distinguish it from the one that was on the outside. And you can just see the one on the outside just barely in this picture that we have. That is called the um, brazen altar. And so the golden altar is altar of incense is called golden altar just to distinguish it from that one. And like the table of showbread, This altar was made of wood that was overlaid with gold. And we are familiar, very familiar with those symbolisms of wood and gold. And uh, normally I I don't think that uh, I would go back and talk about that again. But it is necessary for us just to mention wood and gold this afternoon because those are very important to two aspects of the nature of Christ related to his intercession. Now our study has been filled with pictures of Christ. Of course, that's what tabernacle worship is about. And here we have another one that shows his his wonderful works. This is the role of intercession that's made possible by the endless life of Christ. It is is necessary for Christ to be resurrected and living to perform this critical work for every person who believes in God and desires to see him. The text then is Exodus chapter 30, where we read of the construction of this altar. We, it talks about the work of the priest at the altar and incense that is burned on the altar. So we have a, a picture here next that will help you to visualize it. And I, we put one of those in your, in your uh, bulletin thing tonight because I wasn't sure that we were going to be able to show any pictures, but the guy's got the projector going, so that's a wonderful thing, so you see it right there in front of you. Now, Exodus chapter 30, begin in verse number 1. And thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon, of acacia wood shalt thou make it, a cubit shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, four square shall it be, and two cubits shall be the height thereof, the horns thereof shall be of the same. Let me just stop there for a second, a cubit. I I hope everybody knows that's 18 inches, about 18 inches. That's a cubit. So you can do the math there and uh, figure out how big this was. And thou shalt, verse 3, thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, the top thereof and the sides thereof round about, and the horns thereof. And thou shalt make unto it a crown of gold round about. And two golden rings shalt thou make to... Uh, make to it under the crown of it by the two corners thereof upon the two sides of it shalt thou make it and they shall be for places for the staves to bear it withal and thou shalt make the staves of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony before the mercy seat that is over the testimony where I will meet with thee and Aaron shall burn incense thereon Sweet incense every morning, when he dresseth the lamps, he shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lighteth the lamps at even, he shall burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall offer no strange incense thereon, nor burnt sacrifice, nor meat offering. 
neither shall you pour drink offering thereon. Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once in a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once in the year shall he make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy unto the Lord. Now, if you go over to verse number 34, this part talks about the incense for this altar. Verse 34, and the Lord said to Moses, take unto these sweet spices, stacti and anica and galbanum, these sweet spices with pure frankincense, of each shall there be a like weight. And thou shalt make it a perfume, a confection, after the art of the apothecary, tempered together, pure and holy. And thou shalt beat some of it very small, and put of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation, where I will meet with thee, it shall be unto you most holy. As for the perfume which thou shalt make, ye shall not make to yourselves according to the composition thereof, it shall be unto thee holy for the Lord." Whosoever shall make like unto that to smell thereto shall even be cut off from his people. Our picture shows the beauty of this piece of furniture. And we expect stunning works in the tabernacle because each of these articles of furniture tells us something about the majesty of Christ. Now the altar of incense... And the pictures that we have of it, these are artists' conceptions. And as, as with all the, the pictures and opinions that people have, there are controversies that are involved. And the altar of incense has its own controversy. And that's about the horns and the rings for the staves. Now, what we've just read here in the scripture, there are parts of this that are very clear. Uh, those are the materials. That's very clear. The dimensions of it, the cubits and so forth, that's clear to us. And we see from this description that it was the largest of the furnishings in the tabernacle. Uh, and I say the largest because we don't really know how tall the lampstand was. There's no dimensions given for it. But we assume that it is the tallest that was in the, in the tabernacle. And I mentioned before when we discussed the table of showbread that these articles are much smaller perhaps than we would, could imagine. They're, we would imagine they're... They don't compare to the height of furnishings that we would have in our houses. And my conclusion was that the Israelites must have been much smaller people than we are. Uh, this is furniture that's made for Lilliputians, even though the text doesn't say anything about a priest that's named Gulliver. But as you see in this picture also, there's a border crown that goes around the top of the perimeter. Uh, there are horns on each of the four corners, although that's part of the controversy because the text doesn't specify there are four horns. But four is the usual number. We learned that when we studied the brazen altar because it had four. And then there are rings for the staves. And you see in this picture there is one, uh, well, that's not, it doesn't look much like a ring in that picture, does it? But there's one placeholder, it looks like, for the staves, those poles that go through to carry it with. And there's a little bit of controversy about that. Does, that, does this, this text mean that there were uh, just one on each side? Uh, some people say it was on the corners, so they uh, carried this crossways. And some say there were two on each side that would make it stable and so forth. So there's all controversy, sorts of controversy about that. Now, the significance of the missing numbers, uh, how many rings there are, how many horns there are, uh, the significance is questionable. 
perhaps there's a type in that somewhere. Uh, some think that there is, but I don't see the need of exploring it because we're quite uncertain why that detail was left out. But there is one thing that I am quite sure of with this altar, and that is that it represents prayer. It represents the right way to approach God, and it represents the work of Christ who alone is the way that we can come to God. And the practical part of the study of the tabernacle is the symbolism of prayer, and that's very, very important, or the practical part of this. It's very important that we talk about prayer because prayer is essential for the well-being of God's people and the relationship that we have with the Lord. In Scripture, the burning of incense always or almost always relates to prayer. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 141, Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Two things are seen in that verse. The first is that the altar of incense is connected to prayer, and the second is that it's connected to the praise of the Lord God. Prayer is like a pleasing aroma that goes up to God. That's symbolized by the uh, smoke of incense that wafts upward and then fills the room with a lovely fragrance. Lifting hands, that is a way of praising God. Now, I wanted to stop on that for just a a minute here uh, this afternoon. I want to hold this thought for just a second. Lifting hands when we sing and pray. That's not bad. You may wonder, why is it customary in our church that we don't do that? Why is it not customary? Why We, we sing songs, haven't we? We have one of the songs that we sing about lifting hands, but nobody lifts their hands. And you wonder, why, why don't we lift our hands when we sing? Well, I'm going to describe to you the, the issue, the reason that we don't. Maybe you don't agree with it, but it has become the reason that we don't hear and many Baptist churches don't. Uh, And in a a sense, I think it's sad that we don't because it's it's a wonderful expression. But unfortunately, it's necessary because of the abuse of those who have made lifting of hands into something that it's not. Lifting hands is used in charismatic churches. And to them, it's a symbolism of calling down the Holy Spirit for a special feeling that, a feeling rather that is received for the lifting of hands. It's sort of like lightning striking a lightning rod. And the hands then become the channel for the Holy Spirit. And in doing that, worship is perverted by the action. And so whenever you see a congregation that en masse lifts their hands, people come in and they just assume that the congregation is charismatic. Well, they might not be, but that has become a symbol of charismatic worship. And it symbolizes a, a belief in the Holy Spirit and gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gifts that, that aren't possible in the church today and gifts that passed out of existence with the first century church. Now, we don't practice it, but it's not because we don't understand it, but because the association confuses people who might not know what we believe. Now, I I can give you an example of this from 1 Corinthians. Paul chastised the church at Corinth uh, for the abuse of speaking in tongues. And he said, if you all speak at the same time and someone comes into the assembly of the church, won't they think that you are mad? And that, that speaking in tongues in that way became an association of people that are crazy. And likewise, 
if someone comes into our church and they see everyone in the church raises their hands before they ever hear what we have to say, they automatically assume that we're charismatic. And I know of people that wouldn't think twice about leaving the church, uh, not even hearing what, what goes on, because they don't want to be a part of a charismatic church. They don't want to have anything to do with charismatic worship. Uh, and, and this is important because I, I think that charismania is a harmful breeding ground of heresy. It's the breeding ground of the word of faith movement. It's the breeding ground of the prosperity gospel. It's the breeding ground of corrupt television ministries like TBN and others that broadcast around the world and thwart the efforts of true missionaries. If you ask any of our missionaries which groups are the hardest to overcome, which false gospel is the hardest to root out of people's minds to get them to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and understand it, without question they will tell you it's charismatics. And I can tell you that the heresies of charismania uh, is are, are the heresies are multiple and uh, there are people that have come out of that. They don't want to be associated with it. And so I don't want any confusion about where we stand on this. But then as I say that, I'll back up just a little bit and say, if you want to raise your hand, we're not going to come down there and slap you. Uh, we're not going to stop you from doing it. There's nothing wrong with raising hands. But we don't encourage it for everybody because of this confusion. I want to be very clear about what we believe and practice in this church and I don't like to explain away inconsistencies if I don't have to. So that's one that's the main reason that we don't practice it in our church. Well, going back to the prayer connection with incense, in Revelation chapter 5, we read uh, of this scene in heaven at God's throne. In verse number 8, and when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. That, of course, is talking about incense. And we remember that the tabernacle was built uh, according to a blueprint that was given to Moses, made after a pattern of things that are in heaven. So we would expect that there is a golden altar in heaven. And in fact, there is, according to Revelation 9, verse number 13. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So there is the golden altar. This is the one that's a pattern for the one that Moses made. And that verse should, this verse should settle the question about how many horns were on the altar. The one in heaven had four horns, and the one uh, in the tabernacle was made after that pattern. So I think we're safe to say that the one in the tabernacle has four horns. Well, is the, is the altar in heaven connected to prayer? That's, that's the next question. Well, the proof for that is in Revelation chapter 6, verse number 9, where there is a specific request of saints that were killed by the Antichrist in the tribulation. In verses 9 and 10 of Revelation 6, And when he had opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? There is a prayer for vengeance. 
Now, I hope you remember the sermon that I preached this morning. What is a prayer of vengeance? An imprecatory prayer. And that's what you see in, in that scripture. These are souls that are under the golden altar that is in heaven. And they plead to God to avenge them because these are people that were killed under the reign of the Antichrist. And when that's done, and it will be done, then Christ is ready to begin his kingdom on the earth. And then speaking further of Christ's kingdom, Christ as king is represented by that crown of gold that boards, borders the top of this altar. So there's wood in the altar that represents Christ's humanity. And in his humanity, it was necessary for Christ to pray. He had to depend upon the Holy Spirit for his support. And his daily prayers helped him to endure temptations and weaknesses of the flesh that he'd never experienced. And yet each time that he called on the Father, there is also a reminder of gold, that he was one with his Father. And in his high priestly prayer, he was praying to his Father, and he prayed that he would be received back up into glory, and he would be with the Father again in that position that he held before he subordinated himself. And so that crown of gold on the altar is a reminder that Christ is crowned with glory and honor. As this fragrance of sweet incense ascended from the altar, it showed that everything that the son prayed, the father was pleased to hear. And so here we see another way that wood for humanity and gold for deity are blended together to present Jesus in his humanity and also the glorious Christ in his deity. So you can see there's a lot going on here with this altar and there's uh, much significance we're just barely scratching the surface of that this evening. Well, as we continue the study, I want to shift our focus to the grace of prayer. Uh, we've noted the connection to incense, uh, prayer and incense. And this altar was put in the tabernacle as a sign of the importance of prayer for God's people. Prayer is communication with God. And this altar shows the the indispensable dependence upon Jesus Christ to help us to reach God in prayer. Now the tabernacle is about worship. No question about that. And one of the means of worship, worshiping God, is prayer. In our Sunday morning series in First Thessalonians, we looked at the fifth chapter and there I showed you there is a prescription for prayer in First Thessalonians, or worship rather, in First Thessalonians 5. And there between two types of worship, between um, praise and preaching, there is prayer. That's part of our worship. So let's talk about this aspect of prayer and show you how the altar of incense demonstrates the importance of prayer for God's people. So our, our first point of our outline is the prominence of prayer, the prominence of prayer. In both Old and New Testaments, God made it known that prayer is an integral part of our worship. When Adam walked with God in the garden, he talked directly with God. It was one-on-one -on -one conversation. He walked and he talked with God as friends and God had created him for fellowship. And those talks that Adam had with God were, in a sense, prayers, but they weren't prayers like, like we need to pray because these were prayers that didn't require an intermediary. After Adam fell, God didn't lose his interest in Adam. There was still a desire for fellowship. God still had that desire. That's what he created Adam for, uh, worship and for glory and for fellowship. But that fellowship was interrupted because of sin, 
And God couldn't fellowship with Adam because this barrier of sin was between them. And it's clear in Genesis chapter 3 that it was God who initiated contact with Adam. Adam preferred that he would hide from God. He didn't want his sin found out or he thought he could hide and God wouldn't know. Um, And so Adam wasn't looking for fellowship with God then. And And I think that every person who believes that coming to Christ is nothing more than free will should look back to that first man to see what happened before Adam would come to God. Adam had only one sin that prevented his fellowship with God, and that one sin caused Adam not to want to come to God. Now you think about how many sins we have today, how many sins that we've all committed. Do you think with all of those sins that we would ever seek out God, that we want fellowship with him? The answer to that obviously is no. And so it takes God to do to us, with us, exactly what he did with Adam. And that is for God to come to us and to make a reconciliation between us and him. So this barrier of sin does not keep us from him. So what God did to restore fellowship with Adam was to sacrifice. He took the skins of animals and he clothed Adam and then fellowship was restored. And since then, in order for us to speak with God, the basis of it is always an atoning, reconciling sacrifice. So from that point in Genesis chapter 3, fellowship and communication with God was possible. Though we are sinful, though we aren't holy as God is holy, communication was possible because of the reestablishment of the relationship by the blood sacrifice. Now we're going to explore that aspect later on. But for now, the practice of prayer, this has always been a prominent part of God's dealing with man. It's the reason that it's so important for us today because God has always used this as the form of communication. And and this is how we talk to God today. So before there was a tabernacle, before that was made, before there was a place to God to dwell with his people, before there was any formal worship system, before Israel was a nation, before all of that, before any acts of worship, there was communication with God in prayer. I might also add that prayer was essential in the beginning because there was no written word for God's people. When God wanted to communicate, God gave his instructions to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, always in the communication of prayer. Now today, we have the word of God. But rather than prayer being diminished because we have the word, prayer is enhanced Because of the word. The proper way to pray is to take the word of God, to ruminate on God's word, to quote back to God the promises that he made, tell God what he's done for us and remind God of what he said and claim all of God's promises. If you haven't seen that Matthew Henry book on prayer, um, we still have a few of those out there on the table. Get a copy of that. It won't be enough for everybody if you didn't get one, but... Uh, you could you could look at that and you can see how the Puritans prayed. And there's much that we can learn from that. How they spoke scripture back to God. That's That was so much of their prayers. Quoting back to God the promises that he made. Well, since prayer is so important, we would expect that when God wanted a place of worship and he wanted to dwell with his people, that he would have a symbolism of prayer and he would make that prominent. So we remember then what I, that information that I gave you in the beginning of the sermon. The altar of incense is the tallest 
furnishing in the tabernacle. It's noticeable, it's visible as the priest entered there and it was placed in a position of prominence. Now I want to show you two ways the prominence of prayer is indicated by where this altar is placed. The first is the indication of position. The prominence is indicated by its position. In the tabernacle arrangement, the priest entered from the eastern end. On his right, on the north wall, was the table of showbread. On his left, that's the south wall, there's the golden lampstand. And directly in front of him, beyond those two, is the altar of incense. And it's immediately before the veil that goes into the most holy place. On the Day of Atonement, before the priest could go behind that veil, he had to stop at this altar. He had to approach this altar. And behind that veil is where he's going to meet with God. There's where the Ark of the Covenant is. Our text talks about the mercy seat that's there. The presence of God was behind that veil in the light of the Shekinah. And before the priest could go in there, he had to have the blood of atonement. And he must stop first at the altar of incense. So the place of it, the position of it, standing directly in front of the veil, shows that intercession is an integral part of our communion with God. Now remember again that Adam sinned. Direct communication with God wasn't possible any longer. And from that time until this, it's necessary to have a mediator for intercession. In the tabernacle, the priest was the intercessor. He brought the incense of prayer. And this altar represents Christ, that no one accesses the throne of grace without him. In other words, you don't get behind the veil, so to speak, without Jesus Christ. First Timothy 2 verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Paul wrote that both Jews and Gentiles have only one way they can access God, and that's through the blood of the cross. In Ephesians chapter 2 and that he might reconcile both, he means Jew and Gentile, unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him, through Jesus Christ, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now notice there Paul says we have peace with God because of the cross. And that just takes us back to Adam who couldn't casually approach God after he sinned. Only with the sacrifice where God clothed him with righteousness could he approach. And we're dependent upon that same righteousness. And it's a righteousness, of course, that's given to us by Jesus Christ in that perfect sacrifice. And without that, we have no, no right to approach God. So the reconciliation of the cross, that provides access to him. So likewise, the priest must go to the altar before passing through the veil to make atonement for the people. And so his actions are emblematic of the work that Christ did for his people. We read in Hebrews chapter 9, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. That, that's one of the verses in the Bible that explains typology. The holy places made with hands, those are the two compartments in the tabernacle and temple called the holy place and the most holy place. Christ did not go into those. Those were typical. Christ went into the true holy place of which these were a type. And Christ is there pleading 
interceding in the presence of God for us. So the author of Hebrews shows unmistakably these different aspects of the tabernacle are patterned after the greater things that are in heaven. There is an altar of incense in heaven. There is a mercy seat in heaven. There is a place where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, continually appears to plead the case of his people. Now since we're saved sinners, we need that intercession until we become just men made perfect. When that happens, when we're in heaven, when all of us are in heaven, there is no longer any need for intercession. Then we come directly to God. Now to line up then the practical side with the theological side, the position of the altar tells us that prayer is to be prominent in each of our lives. That we worship God through prayer. And in the practice of prayer, we show that we are always dependent upon God. And because we show that dependence, when we go to God in prayer, God is always pleased with that kind of worship. You recognize who he is. You recognize who you are. You, you, you must have him. You must have Jesus Christ. Now, too often, though, what we do in church is we focus on, on service first. We push people into service without preparing the heart to do it. And this is why I think it's vitally important on our Sunday mornings that we have that confessional prayer before we come to the preaching of God's word. Uh, in that confessional prayer, we speak to God and we have this communication line established there for God to hear us or for us to hear from God in the preaching. But we also must be aware that not just that time, but God says that we are to be continually in prayer. We're to pray without, pray without ceasing. And that would indicate that the Christian all, is always to be in the confessional mode. We are always to be confessing our sin in order that our prayers aren't hindered. The preparation of the heart for service is a lesson that Jesus taught with his encounter with Mary and Martha. Martha was busy with service. That's what she did. She was a, she was a lady that spent her time working. She was cleaning house. She was preparing food for her guest. Mary chose first to go and sit at the feet of Jesus. Go and listen to Jesus first. Martha complained about that. Mary's not helping me in the service. And Jesus told Martha that Mary had chosen the better part. She did the better thing. First she came and listened to him. And she was prepared for service. And so if we fail to worship in prayer. Our service won't have any real heartfelt conviction. When we think of Abraham interceding for Lot. Moses for Israel at the foot of Sinai, David pleading for the people, Jeremiah warning um, and weeping before God because of the sins of the people, Elijah praying for the recovery of God's people, and then even Jesus interceding for his disciples, we can see the importance of placing that altar that represents prayer in a prominent place in the tabernacle. Now secondly, the importance of the altar is seen by the indication of power. Position first and then power. Verse 30 of the text says, And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once in a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonements. Once in a year shall he make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy unto the Lord. Where is this atonement made? It's made on the horns of the altar. Now, this was one of several 
acts of atonement that were done on the Day of Atonement. Horns represent power. There are many scriptures that speak of horns and power. Christ himself is called the horn. He's called the strength of Israel. Sometimes the Bible says that God will take away the horn from Israel. And he means he'll take away their power and their strength. In Amos, God said he would cut off the horns of the altar at Bethel. Now, if you know that history, you know how Israel built altars to false gods. They had uh, an altar at Bethel and they had horns on the altar just like the one in the tabernacle had horns and they thought that the power of their gods was in that altar. It's an indication of power. But of course it had no power and so God said, I'll cut off the horns of that altar and cast them to the ground. In Revelation there are horns. Sometimes they speak of the power of governments. They speak of the power of leaders. Sometimes it's the power of God himself. And so putting horns on the altar of incense is a way that God wanted to show that there is power in prayer. Now in this next picture, you'll see the priest putting blood on the horns of the altar. Here the priest is in his full dress. This is the dress that he wore on the Day of Atonement. And there he is taking the blood and placing it on the horns of that altar. So there's where the blood sacrifice is applied before he went in to sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And it tells us that, that prayer is powerless. There is no power in prayer unless it considers the sacrifice of Christ. Oh, you have many people that pray. Many people think they can talk with God, their God, whoever their God may be. But the only power that there is in prayer is because Christ lives in us. And through him, prayer becomes powerful. I'll have a little bit more on that next time. And I, but I'll prepare you for that discussion just by saying this, that only those who have the blood of Christ applied to their hearts have the right to pray. And only they have the power of prayer. Is prayer powerful? Well, prayer is one of the means by which God works. I know, I'm quite certain that many of you, if not all of you, have some story to tell about how powerful prayer is. You've seen prayer work in your own life. If you're a Christian, certainly you have. You know what God can do. And there are several instances, uh, instances in the scripture, many of these, that, that show the power of prayer and how the power of God is unleashed through prayer. Uh, I, there are many, but I just want to mention four, four to you this afternoon before we close. The first one that I think of is Hannah. In the Old Testament, uh, Samuel's mother, Hannah, mentioned a horn in her prayer. She was barren, desperately wanted a child, and so she continually prayed for a baby, and God heard her prayer. And she began her, her praise for the child that God gave with an ode to God's providence, and she said, Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. And she meant that all of her strength and her power was in God. That's how she had this baby. She ended the prayer with a reference to the Messiah. This is in 1 Samuel 2, verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. And he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Anointed is the Hebrew Malshiach. It means Messiah. Now if you'll turn to Second Chronicles chapter 7, the next 
prayer that I think of is Solomon's long, long prayer in Second Chronicles chapter 6. And this was at the dedication of the temple. But I want you to look in the 7th chapter. And the scripture says in verse number 1, if you found it, Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse number 1. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Is that power in prayer? Solomon prayed, fire fell from heaven. The glory of the Lord descended and filled the temple. That's the power of prayer. Then I think of Elijah's prayer. That contest that he had with Jezebel's prophets on Mount Carmel. Her prophets, you remember, prayed for hours to their God. They, they wailed. They cut themselves. Many Bible scholars believe they used obscene gestures trying to contact their God, begging Baal to send fire to consume their sacrifice. Elijah stood there and mocked them. There was no power in their God or in their prayers. And Elijah took just one opportunity to ask Jehovah God to show who was true God. So he prayed. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. And remember, before that showdown, Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain. And for three and a half years, it didn't rain. James explains in James chapter 5, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain. And the earth brought forth her fruit. So Elijah prayed and stopped the rain for three and a half years. And as quickly as his prayer shut off the spigot, he prayed again. And prayer or prayed again, and, and, and the rain came again. Now, there's an interesting thing here about James' comment about Elijah. Uh, he gave this example to show that the same power that Elijah had in prayer is available to us. He said, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. In other words, he's saying, Elijah is a man just like us. He wasn't supernatural, he wasn't an angel. He was a man that had power with God in prayer. And the point that James make is that, makes is that same power is available in us. He, he led into that example by saying the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And he means you and me. He means those, those of us who are faithful to God and faithful to serve. We live godly lives. We give ourselves to Christ. If we have that in us, then the power of prayer can be in us. James said... You can be an Elijah. Your prayers can have as much power as Elijah. Well, I would say none of us really has a need to call down fire from heaven. Uh, we do have the everyday needs of the church. We can pray about that. If God can do the greater, certainly he can do the lesser. You know, we, we've had enough fire in Sonoma County, so we're not going to be calling down fire. But we do need every day, the everyday providence of God that's available only through prayer. And we have seen the power of God in prayer. We believe in it countless times. 
I've heard Christians say, I can feel God's people praying. And you know why? Because they receive a horn. They receive strength through our prayers. What is it that hinders prayer the most? Oh, sin, yeah. Not praying. Not just choosing not to pray. That hinders the power of prayer. We just don't pray. We don't have because we don't ask, Jesus said. In Matthew 7, he said, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Prayer is prominent because this is the way that God has chosen to give his people what they need. So if you need it, if you have to have it, pray about it. We suffer without because we don't rely on the power of prayer. Prayer is a vehicle to God's blessings. We can't ignore prayer any more than the priest could ignore it when he saw that altar that's prominently placed in front of the veil going into the Holy of Holies. Well, we'll leave our study with that tonight. Uh, Jesus Christ is crowned with power and glory. Only he can open a way for us to come into the presence of the Almighty God. He allows us, he permits us to speak to his Heavenly Father. He intercedes for us and he does it through the prayers of his people. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time you've given us tonight to look into your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the power of prayer. We stand here at this very moment talking to you only because Jesus Christ works for us, intercedes for us, and you hear because of his work on our behalf. We know, Lord, without an atoning sacrifice, without being reconciled to you, we have no right to come. But because we have the right, the word of God says we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We know, Lord, that you desire to hear from us. And so, Father, we sincerely want to tell you how much we love you for sending Jesus Christ into the world to die for our sins and then giving us this, this wonderful way of communicating with you to know the power of God and to know your presence with us. We can feel that when we pray. We thank you for it, Lord. Bless our people. We praise you for all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.